Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Collector's Corner. We have another artist spotlight. I'm super excited because we have the fantastic on the rise rocket ship, Lars Wander with us today. He's probably uncomfortable that I'm saying all these things about him, but this is how I feel. And my name is P. You may know me online at, at Aston Cloud. I'm here again with the wonderful Lars Wander. How are you doing today, Lars? Really, really good. I'm thrilled to be here. I love doing these kinds of things. So thanks for having me. Yeah, we are thrilled to have you. And I will tell you that the community really has been wanting to hear from you. You're, you know, uh, dare I call it breakout collection, how you see me has been like a buzz amongst the, certainly the Grailers community. And I would say the generative art community more broadly. And then on top of that, you've recently been releasing some incredible work in progresses that have people losing their minds, trying to figure out how they can get it. And, uh, you know, is this going to be your bright moments, Tokyo, which congrats on that as well coming up. So a lot of exciting stuff on the generative art side, but, you know, we would like to talk about you as, and hear your story, how you got to here and kind of where you want to go. So maybe we can start with your background. Uh, I, I did a little LinkedIn sleuthing, but maybe you can tell folks like, well, what, what's your day job like? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I work at Google right now, although it's funny timing. I think at the time that this uh, episode's dropping, I'm going to be uh, no longer working there. I recently handed in my two weeks notice and uh, with the intent being of pursuing uh, this artwork full time. But um, actually have been, it's been hard to leave the job because I genuinely enjoy what I do there. And I think it's also really interesting. And there's a cool synergistic effect with, with the artwork there where what our team does is uh, we sort of joke that our job is to draw pretty pictures and that's kind of our, our primary output but we work in the storage organization and specifically and sort of in the very bottom part of the stack there dealing with how data gets written to disks and we write uh, visualization tools that try to uh, sort of create visual metaphors for the behavior of these very large, complicated, distributed global scale systems where <clears throat> like your more technique, uh, your more traditional techniques like uh, drawing line charts and bar graphs and looking at log messages doesn't scale to the uh, the size that uh, that Google has. And uh, so instead we have this uh, small team that um, builds sort of research-esque visualization and analysis tools that uh, allow the site reliability engineers and the software engineers and um, the data analysts to get a better handle on uh, what my boss likes to call the intrinsic behavior of these systems. So we try and find uh, ways to uh, take and re-represent uh, how these systems are behaving at scale and then draw them in the browser and make them interactive and uh, paint a picture like that. That's fantastic. And it, you know, it's funny. I, as I was telling you before, I was working in consulting and I got really good at Excel, but then I tried to learn Python. I didn't tell you this part. And I realized like, I can't even see what I'm doing here. Like, like you take for granted that that visualization is baked in into the tools that are for more everyday users. And you're talking about probably like 10 orders of magnitude, greater amount of information that you're having to put together and, and perhaps help people debug or figure out what's going on. 
And, and were you in that department the whole time or is that a recent development? Yeah, it's a, uh, well, first off, I like the comment you made about sort of assuming that visualization is baked in. And I, I like that you say that because I, I, one thing we find is that some of our users are actually, our best users are very visualization oriented. And those are my favorite users because they, they love our tools, but not everyone's like that. Some people just really love the sort of symbolic and uh, sort of uh, textual representation of data. But, um, but no, to answer your second question, um, uh, I actually, I joined this team right at the start of the shelter in place period during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, that was actually also when I sort of became aware peripherally of generative art or really computer art in general, uh, where uh, before that I'd spent some time working on an open source team and I spent some time uh, as the tech lead for uh, cloud speech to text, which is uh, like a transcription service where it takes audio and returns uh, what's being said in that audio. Uh, uh, and then found this team uh, sort of through happenstance where I happened to use one of the tools that uh, was built by the team and had a real kick using it because I thought it was really fun. It was representing uh, some deployment data in a very unique and visual way and uh, got to talking to the manager. And then uh, a, few years, a few years later, he reached out and said they had an opening. And uh, that, was, that was right around when I joined. That's awesome. Okay. I have a bunch of different places I, I want to take this, but maybe just really quickly before we go back to the start, um, how does it feel to have made that decision to put in the two weeks notice? And uh, yeah, like, are you excited? Are you nervous? Are you, yeah. What's going through your, your mind and heart right now? Yeah, I feel like it hasn't totally sunk in yet. I think on one hand, um, uh, like I guess all the things you said, I'm excited, nervous, <laughs> uh, all of these. I think more than anything though, I feel like um, over time I was feeling more and more like this opportunity to uh, take art seriously and do it full time is something that uh, probably only really get one shot to in, in my lifetime. It's kind of a very unique time and place for this particular type of art. Uh, and uh, I feel more than anything that if I, if I didn't take this opportunity that in 20 years or so, I'd probably feel a lot of regret that if I uh, never really got to explore what it was like to really put all of my creative energy into doing this, where really up until now, like I, because one, I really, I've loved doing my, my day job so much, but uh, two, it's also uh, fairly intensive and requires a lot of work. Um, I really haven't been able to dedicate myself completely, or at least dedicate all of my creative energy to uh, to making this artwork. I feel like I have like a million ideas of things I want to build and I'm like so thrilled to uh, get to explore them that I, uh, I think more than anything, feel grateful that I can do this because it's like, it's very, it's kind of absurd to me that this is <laughs> even a possibility or even potentially a career path. Um, like it doesn't, hasn't really totally clicked that it's something that I can get paid to do. And uh, but because of that, it's like, it feels kind of marvelous and kind of wonderful. And there's like a lot of, I don't know, like a sense of magic around it that I, uh, that hasn't really worn off yet. And I hope never wears off because I feel like that's where, where all the enjoyment comes from. Yeah. I, I completely understand where you're coming from. It's funny as I get to talk to artists like yourself, 
I feel similarly, but I get to talk about art and this is my day job and get to meet interesting people. And the community is so good and I hope it stays this way, but really supportive. The people like you are fantastic. People like Artix Code, we were talking about Sophia before and all the collectors. I mean, really just like high quality folks right now building out this this world that I, I think of as like we're building the digital parallel of the art world, similar to how crypto's built the digital parallel to the finance world or is building it early stages. And I think the opportunity to be a part of that in any capacity, artist, builder, even collector, I think is just really exciting for for us. And but I'll I'll stop rambling about myself. Uh, you're you're clearly a fantastic software engineer to be at Google. Everyone knows that. Um, how how has art played a part in your life, or when did it start playing a part in your life? Mm, well, <laughs> I think I'm I can pretend to be a passable software engineer. <laughs> I think that's one thing I've learned, but um, that's sort of me at best. But uh, as far as art goes, I think like I don't know. Ever since I was a little kid, I was always like, fascinated with with drawing. As I got older, um, I got really into making movies on like little home camcorders with kind of crappy desktop software for editing, but have them like stashed away in a secret YouTube channel, <laughs> I know, which hopefully no one ever finds. <laughs> but, um, and then for a while- If, if uh, they find those, they're gonna sell for a lot, you know, it's- <laughs> No, they're this not. This world is crazy. <laughs> I think my, all my art will be severely devalued if they <laughs> find those, those YouTube videos. But um, uh, I, all the while was really fortunate. My parents put me into guitar lessons when I was a kid, so I, sort of grew up with like a strong music influence, which then at some point evolved into uh, writing my own music, which was like a very, very interesting, and I think also very informative uh, creative practice. Uh, and then for a while in New York, I got really into street photography, which um, I think like was in part driven by like a fascination with like gear and photography equipment, which is a lot of fun. I think a lot of people can relate to, but also I found that, at least on the outset, uh, that street photography was a very interesting uh, way to push me to sort of get out of my shell and explore the city a little bit more. Uh, but then very quickly um, evolved into a fascination with the practice and uh, a real sort of uh, respect for the, the artists that do it well evolved from that too. Like, for example, I talked about this in my, my AOI masterclass, but uh, like Daniel Arnold, for example, is just, in my opinion, one of the greats. And he produces such, like, not necessarily immediately visually stunning, but like very deep and fascinating and playful and almost like flirtatious photography that capture very candid and very organic, unscripted, but bizarre moments just in New York City that, uh, sort of really captured me and pulled me in. And uh, it sounds maybe kind of cliche, but it's there that I learned that like a piece of art doesn't have to be pretty to be good or to be interesting. And it's much more important to have something uh, interesting and engaging at a level deeper than just the initial visual aesthetic that uh, at least to me makes a piece of artwork compelling. And then it wasn't really yet until the pandemic that I got into uh, any sort of uh, visual or not visual, but maybe more traditional artwork where, um, again, it's maybe not traditional, but I, I got a pen plotter and uh, it, that turned into like a deep rabbit hole of uh, 
like just playing with it day in and day out where I was locked in my tiny apartment and the pen plotter sort of kept me company for uh, for that time and I was plotting endlessly and exploring and exploring and uh, then at some point sort of felt like I it felt like a little confining like at first it was interesting to have that as um, like a creative constraint like having on one hand the precision of the machine but uh, also like the lack of uh, uh, maybe what's what's the right word like dexterity that the machine can really exert uh, that, that sort of drove me to wanting to play more with really just computer artwork where you you have sort of in a sense, unlimited control over every single pixel, and you can compose whatever sort of image you want to. And that's what, what drove me into, I guess, the kind of work that I've been making recently. I appreciate you talking about your background and how you had these creative practices, whether it was music or making the videos and getting into photography. I'm curious, given that, why did you decide to go into engineering which I think now as we're emerging, certainly in this generative art world, we don't think of engineering as being a non-creative practice. And I think most engineers who are actually doing it know that it's not a creative practice or sorry, it is a creative practice, but when at least I was growing up in school, it was not portrayed that way, right? It was like, you kind of have the arts, which were these cool creative things, but like never made money. And then you had like the kind of engineering science and like business stuff that or I don't know, maybe less creative. I know this is probably like some of my baggage from a child that, but I was curious, like, yeah, what, what drew you to the technical side? Yeah. Yeah. I think hundred percent it was, uh, the fact that, uh, my dad's a physicist and then he's, uh, but working as a programmer and, uh, sort of being exposed to, uh, computers from a very young age. Uh, I think uh, he jokes that, when I first learned to spell my name, I would sell it, say it's L-A-R-S return <laughs> for like the entry key, which <laughs> I think, I guess I could see how, uh, like as a, as a dad, that's probably very funny to see your kid uh, spelling your name like that. But um, uh, yeah, I think I just, uh, from like a very young age, like having him as an influence and seeing um, like the technical side is something like very interesting and engaging, uh, just also made that very fun. Like I think that uh, I um, was like very fascinated with computers uh, from a young age and um, sort of the more I got into it um, and like went to go study it in school, um, the more I enjoyed it and the more uh, I really gained an appreciation uh, for I think the engineering side of it and the mathematical side of it, which uh, is still like like kind of very deeply magical to me too, like what what goes on there. It's not like maybe we think of like computers as uh, like predictable or as like cold and understandable, but there's uh, like the frontiers of it. And even at the stuff that you can explore with on your own desktop, there's like really marvelous things you can do with a computer. And, um, and they're like in some ways like deeply unpredictable. And uh, that's something that like I hope to explore and express with my artwork. And that's one of the things that I feel like I'm so, uh, so lucky to get to do there. Yeah, I got to tell you, that's a beautiful analogy, I think, for generative art, right? Because to some extent, you are are giving up control and the what, what you end up with visually is a little bit unexpected. And I think of, I, I too, am, I, I studied engineering 
uh, in my undergrad as well. I was biomed engineering, so I didn't get as deep into the computer science, but I've always thought that what we see, you know, we're captivated by certain things. Like I, I really love images of nature and, and being in nature and it, my mind, that's all a, some kind of a code. Right. And it's not like, it's exactly defined. You have some primitives that can then manifest in all sorts of different ways, like infinite combinations effectively. And in that way, I think there is something beautiful about it and the math that, that goes into it. So I, I hear you on that and, and definitely resonate with that. And as you were talking about just a few minutes ago, how you kind of transitioned into plotters during the start of the pandemic, was that the first time you were making art with your computer or with code or had you dabbled with it? I mean, my guess is you would dabbled a little bit if you went to the step of buying a plotter, but I'm curious when you started really harnessing the code as, as the medium. Yeah. Well, I feel like even maybe for the first year, what I was doing with my plotter, I wouldn't even really consider it as art. Uh, I would like show my friends and they'd say like, oh, you're making art. And I'm like, no, it's not artwork. It's just like playing with a pen plotter. And I, I think it's still like maybe a, a kind of tough question. Like, I don't know, what is art? What isn't art? I think um, that's I don't know, silly distraction. But I think what I was, what I did before I, I played with, um, uh, like programming on the side for doing, I guess, all sorts of maybe weird experimentation, but it was almost never visual. And I, uh, in retrospect, have no idea why not. I feel like now, like the connection's obvious and it makes complete sense. But uh, for the most part, like most of my experiments are sort of based around computer languages and like writing strange interpreters or compilers and and these kinds of things, which. Um, I think there's like an artistic element to that too, you could say. And I think that like uh, programming language design can be um, very heavily influenced by aesthetics, oddly enough. But, uh, and I think that it's also why it sort of sparks um, some very fierce debates and some strongly held opinions in the uh, computer community, <laughs> the, the whole topic of programming languages. But, um, but no, I think that uh, just for whatever reason, seeing the pen plotter run um, and knowing that it was driven by something as simple as um, like X, Y coordinates where you say like, move over here, move the pen down, move over here, move the, like lift the pen up, move over here. I was like, oh, it's probably fun just to write programs for that. Like, let's see what happens. And um, like, so what I did when I ordered the pen plotter was I, before it even arrived, started writing a library both to visualize the predicted output of the program. So it's like, easy enough to do because you can like on an HTML canvas just draw the same lines that the plotter is going to draw. Uh, and then also a little library to drive the plotter using those that same sequence of commands. And then when the plotter arrived, it was, uh, it's like, I guess, also a testament to just how easy to use and how robust these uh, axi draw units are by evil mad scientists that plugged it in and it kind of immediately started working. And that was like a real uh, source of joy and um, uh, kind of just like carried on from there, basically. Oh man, that's so cool. And so how long was it until you thought, you know what, let me try to put this out there beyond just friends and family? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I started posting them to Instagram pretty early on just for fun. Because I think like before that I was posting my street photography and uh, before that I was like posting music to SoundCloud. So I think like I never really minded sharing stuff. I knew that it was never like like fully baked or professional or like 
necessarily like especially starting out it's never at like the level of quality that you expect from yourself but i feel like that that process of uh sharing it's like kind of fun because i think something that i really enjoy is like finding some persona online and <clears throat> seeing that they still have like various bits of their digital life uploaded and you can see their progression so i think like i um kind of intentionally figure like, hey, why not just upload this stuff? Maybe one day, either I'll be happy to go back and look at this and say like, it's fun to see where it started. Uh, or maybe it doesn't ever amount to anything and it just kind of sits out there forever. Uh, or maybe to someone else, like it can be kind of interesting to go back and see like, like, yeah, when you start, like your stuff doesn't look great. Or maybe it's not good by any objective definition from the start, but part of the process. And it's kind of fun just to, uh, to learn and play with and use it as like a, a tool for uh, feeding your own curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're putting these online and, uh, when, when did it turn where you said, okay, well, maybe I should put on a show or try to sell some of this. Can you walk us through that transition? Uh, it was kind of funny. I, I have this one friend, Misha, who he's always has, he's like five steps ahead in his ideas. And he, was on to NFTs maybe before, like in early 2020, before they really had a name for themselves. And, uh, and he, uh, I think he was on to them even before then. But when he saw what I was doing with the plotter, he was like, uh, Lars, you have to make NFTs for these because it's like it's exactly what you're doing. Like the plots are almost uh, inherently fungible because you can replot them until you associate them with a non-fungible token where now that plot becomes like an item that's, uh, that has like a, uh, a uniqueness or um, it's like now a one of one in a sense, I guess, using the, the current terminology when you, when you associate it with a token. So um, I uh, like decided to learn Solidity and I wrote like a very tiny ERC721 contract and deployed it using, forgetting what it was. It's the, it's like the popular uh, Python framework for, uh, for deploying this stuff, but yeah, I'm totally blanking on the name, but yeah, I deployed it. Uh, and uploaded like five different pieces and sent them out to friends. Uh, and that was even before, I guess I decided to try to, to sell any of it. I think the first, I sold like one single piece. I made like a Shopify store or something and like uploaded a piece. And then overnight, one of my friends bought it and I was like, oh, this is exciting. And I'm like, oh, I have to deal with like shipping it and packing it. And I can't really charge enough for me to feel like it's really uh, worth my time to do this full time because it's like the very first artwork I ever sold. So I figured I'd like slow down on selling it because the, the whole like mechanical process around like uh, actually getting the works out there, it's fairly involved. And I figured it'd be more fun just to, to play with it. So at that point, it wasn't really about making money. It was just about sort of exploring. Um, but then I think like later in 2021, around Thanksgiving time, FX Hash was uh, really starting to take off. And at that point, I was already familiar with everything going on in art blocks and i was like oh this is amazing i really want to like try to make a long form collection uh haven't really uh tried anything like this before and fx hash was kind of like the, the perfect medium and i think many people had the same feeling at that time where they sort of saw this as an opportunity to sort of test out the, the medium and get their name out there and try making some generative artwork and that's that's great i released a few collections based on some ideas that i guess i'd sort of been brewing over time. And um, I intentionally listed the prices as very, very low. They're like two Tez or something. 
just because I didn't feel like I could possibly charge anymore. And I definitely couldn't at the time either. Uh, and I uh, really just had fun sort of seeing them get created and seeing people get excited about them. And that sort of feeds the cycle of getting more excited about it myself. And, uh, and yeah, that's how, how I got into selling these. Yeah. And I'm, you know, my, my collector brain is buzzing hearing about these early ERC 721s that you, you put out there. Are they still out there? Are there some folks with the uh, original Lars Wanders out there? Yeah, they also have them. They're, uh, I think like, I think three of them uh, are with close friends and one of them are with someone that like helped me understand solidity a little better. So I told them I would just send them uh, the token and the plot and uh, yeah, they're, they're out there. So I don't know what's going on with them or, uh, uh, or if they're still in good shape, but uh, in theory, they, they, they live out there. Well, well, we know the NFT is still in good shape, right? That's a, what, what won't degrade. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't let them sell those. Do not let them sell those because collectors will be trying to to find them, I'm sure. And it's funny what you were talking about. It's it's so I don't know if ironic is the right word, but that that the analog part is the part that annoys us. We're like, ah, like shipping and like dealing with like USPS or whatever. You know, it's funny how the digital, I mean, and of course, like we love the prints. I got my first print, a new house, the wall's a little bit bare, but hopefully in the next few weeks we'll I'll have some art up here it's amazing, but it's just, it's just so interesting that it's, you know, once you experience moving these things around and, and buying and selling them digitally, it's just so much easier than dealing with the analog side, despite that satisfaction from the analog. I know it's almost a shame, right? Like, I think that I, I wish, uh, I mean, like, I think like the biggest barrier to me though, was the fact that like, at least at the time when I started, like, I think I sold the plot for like a hundred dollars, which is already a lot of money. Uh, but it's not enough. I think, uh, at the time for me to say like, okay, I'm going to make my full-time job selling maybe a handful of a hundred dollar plots a week, because that's, that's just not economically feasible. But I, I think for the right pieces and for the right work, especially the plotter works, like, I think the physical component is like, is very important to me. And I think that it's important that it gets into the collector's hands and that when they sell their token, that the physical also transfers with them, which uh, have, I guess, like two collections now that are plotted where there's a, a token and an accompanying physical piece. And every time I see a, uh, a token transfer ownership and then the, the new collectors say like, oh, I reached out and they're, they're sending me the piece, I get so happy because I feel like that's, I mean, it's not guaranteed to happen, but every time it does happen, I think it's like a, it's a wonderful thing because it's, it's really a part of the it's kind of, I guess it's an experiment in a sense, because you never know how, how these things are going to go going forward. But uh, yeah, no, I, I do feel strongly about that. No, for sure. And I, I think that we as collectors love that as well. Actually, one of my friends uh, recently, he's been waiting for a long time. He'll be happy to hear this uh, DeFi staker. He, he got his hands on a lion's walking. And I think he was able to find the seller and is, is going to receive the print as well. Um, sorry if I got that wrong, DeFi. But yeah, it, it's just, it's really cool for us to have it. Honestly, I, I think it's just a matter of the logistics and increasingly those are improving, but I will tell you, and maybe it may like this, that, uh, I, I want to get to the world where I have my plotter at home and I can buy your NFT and just plot it like right then and there. And then I don't know about the framing part. I guess I'll still have to outsource that, but then just be able to have it immediately. I think that would be 
so cool. And hopefully we get there in the next five years or so. Yeah, I totally encourage you to buy a plotter. <laughs> Unless you don't have one already, I think you should totally get one. They're a blast to play. I don't. I poured all my money to this podcast, so I'm I'm low key hoping that a, a plotter company will send me one to test it out, so I can go ahead and, and let folks know about it. Um, the jokes aside, I, I I think I would get one, although I of course would not say no to a free one. So if anyone's listening, <laughs> just just let me know. Even that scientist is listening, then we can. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Okay. So that's amazing. You started to get all of this uh, attention for your work because it's beautiful and justifiably so. And we, we mentioned this. I, one thing I wanted to ask you really quickly before we dive into your work and kind of your artistic intent and thoughts behind it is we talked about you are working with Artix Code. And I wanted to bring this up for the artists listening as well, because I've artists reach out to me, I have friends of artists reach out, other collectors, and they say, hey, like, especially when they really start uh, getting, becoming more prominent, I'm sure there's a million opportunities coming at you. Hey, Lars, come do this show, that show. We want you to like curate something or do a generative series of this and that. Um, my sense is that it, it can be difficult to navigate for anybody, um, let alone someone who is new to selling their art. Um, what made you decide to work with Artex Code and how, how's that experience been? And uh, this is really, I think, more so for the artists out there who might be listening, but I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, so true. Um, I, well, I'll say first right off the bat that uh, I would say Artex Code is worth every penny. They're fantastic. Sophia and Tony and then Josh and my team too are really just great to uh to have as, as resources and as a part of my team and to work with them is just, uh, it's, it's really great. They, they know what they're doing and they're, um, they're really top notch. Um, I first heard about Artex Code um, when Sophia organized and put on the digital, which is uh, this, this big exhibit they did during Art Basel in Miami, I think 2021. Um, and I think it's, it's like one of those real like standout shows where they did just a fantastic job of um, presenting all of these physical pieces that were, or sorry, digital pieces that were starting to really attract a lot of attention. Like they'd shown up in, I think, like a Sotheby's or Christie's auction. And um, at the time, hadn't really been presented in a really nice way, like maybe using tiny screens or the wrong aspect ratios and poorly lit rooms. And it's kind of a shame to the art. And I think Sophia sort of made it her mission to really present the artwork in a way that she felt the artwork deserved. And I think she did. Did a fantastic job there and um so i saw this like it was on, on instagram I'm like wow this is amazing like what, a, what an incredible uh incredible show like uh, this sophia garcia lady is really talented <laughs> i didn't at the time imagine i would ever have the opportunity to get to work with her uh, um, but uh, around the same time i also started to build the relationship with uh Tony, and that's his online pseudonym, is Tony Marinara. If you're, I guess if, you, if you've heard of... Yeah, I'm familiar with Tony. He's, he's in Grailers. We, we chat all the time and stuff. So yeah, yeah. He's, he's fantastic. Um, but he, he was the first person actually outside of um, uh, like my social circle to feel like really... Uh, get excited about my artwork. I uh, shared on Twitter a picture of um, this piece, uh, Splat 3 of N, uh, which was what later became 
or was sort of inspiration for the, the How You See Me series. Uh, and uh, he uh, like immediately commented and saying, like, can you please mint this? I have to buy this. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> like, I can't imagine why you'd want to do that. But so I, I minted it on Tezos and I think he like created his first Tez wallet because before that he was always collecting on Ethereum. Uh, and he uh, like created 10 editions and uh, for like one Tez each and he bought them all overnight. And then uh, I was like, who is this guy? Like, why does he, <laughs> like it was one very sweet of him, uh, uh, but uh, two like uh, very surprising to me. But um, every time we got to talking and I got to know him better and like, uh, he's like a very, very intelligent guy, very, very thoughtful and has uh, like a clearly defined taste when he's collecting and can articulate really well why he likes a piece and uh, how he feels that it fits into maybe the broader landscape. And I um, basically, the more I got to know him, the more I liked him and uh, really just uh, started using him as a resource, asking him questions like, hey, like if I, if I release this thing, like, uh, like how do you think I should price it? Like who are people that might buy it? Uh, and um, more and more, it felt like he was, I mean, just really helping me out with making connections and giving me great advice that I, I was uh, uh, telling him, like, Tony, you should start an art gallery. Like, you, one, you have a huge collection of artwork. Uh, two, so many artists adore you. And then three, you have all this great advice to give. Um, and apparently at around the same time, I think um, he was having similar conversations with Marcel and uh, with... Um, uh, Martin Grasser, and, uh, and basically uh, all of this combined to him, uh, in addition, sorry, the key piece I'm leaving out here is that through his wife, he's been close friends with Sophia for some time, which crazy coincidence then led to him signing on with Artex Code and quitting his job as, uh, as a corporate lawyer, like very, uh, I think like a hard thing to quit, I imagine, because these things pay very well and they're very prestigious in, in some ways hard probably in, in some ways easy <laughs> to quit yeah I think from what he's described it's also um a tough job to have and he's probably been very grateful to switch to something that i guess he's more interested in the subject uh to begin with but um and uh so he basically came to me and he said lars i'm joining artix code as a representative and I'd love to have you on uh if you want to be on my team i was like oh my god yeah like <laughs> absolutely that sounds fantastic. And uh, then I signed with him officially. So there's like a, a contract and everything. And um, that was maybe about half a year ago at this point. And no, they're fantastic because like they have a great understanding of the space. They have a great understanding of who the various collectors are, what the opportunities are. Um, like it's uh, uh, Sophia and Tony, for example, got me onto super rare without me having to do any work. Just one day an email showed up and said, you're on super rare. It's <laughs> like, this is great. <laughs> Isn't it like these kinds of things that they, uh, they, uh, they can do. And it's, um, really wonderful. Of course, to any artist listening, I think you have to, if you want to sign with a gallery or with someone to, to do these things with you, you, uh, I think you have to obviously trust them and you have to know that they're, they have your best interests at heart and, uh, that's one thing that's really wonderful about Artex Code too, is I think there's been many opportunities where they could have like squeezed me or, or Marty or uh, uh, Itzel for for more money or for to, to push us to grow faster, um, but they 100% uh, uh, like 
uh, have a very long-term focused view and are uh, very, very much have our interests at heart, which is like a really wonderful thing. And they're, they're good people. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm really glad that they're in the ecosystem and, and helping folks navigate because, you know, we, even as collectors, we'll see stuff that sometimes artists do and we're like, Oh, don't do that. And it's, it, you know, it's like hard, I'm sure hard to find a trusted person and the space is so new. I mean, we talk to folks who have been successful in the traditional art world and it, that's a little bit of a different game here in the web three world, as I'm sure it's different if you're doing an exhibition with like, you know, a part in real life, part web three type of deal. So there's, there's a lot of nuances and I'm sure it helps you just focus on the art, which is great. Um, perhaps just one last point on this. Are there any lessons that come to mind? It could be one, it could be three, but anything that you would say to new artists who maybe don't have right now the opportunity to work with a group of folks like RX code and maybe something that you've picked up kind of working with them just through osmosis, like any tips for early folks getting started? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I would say, um, like maybe don't be afraid to say no to an opportunity. I think that, um, I mean, of course, if this is, if it's a fantastic opportunity and you've never seen one like it before, then, absolutely jump on it. But I think that um, in this space, like uh, like the, the the folks putting on the shows have to make money too, and they need artists and they need them to produce works by a certain amount of time. And it's very easy by saying yes to everything to oversubscribe yourself. And it's detrimental in two ways. One, like you can really reasonably only produce so much good work in a year. Uh, and two, like if you overproduce, whether it's work you're proud of or not, it'll probably saturate your own market. And that's that's not a helpful thing either. And I think it's good having Sophia and Tony there to sort of act as uh, like pacemakers and to provide a pulse check to say like, hey, this is a great opportunity, uh, but like if you do it then, it's like right after this other big show you're doing, not a great idea, I'll go talk to them and negotiate a better day for you. And that's like, that's maybe something where not a great tip for someone who doesn't have a Sophia and Tony in their ring, but it's, I think, totally okay and fine to set your own pace and to find a pace that you're comfortable working at and don't feel like you're, you're oversubscribed. Yeah. And I'll, you know, I'm glad you said that. I'll piggyback on that point because I think that, look, if your art is great, they'll wait. And if they won't, there'll be someone else who is, is willing. Now, if it's, you know, art blocks curated, then you, you might, might be worth it to just kind of go with them, but they're also not the type to rush you in anything from, what I can tell and what I can see. And I think that you want to play, there's a saying in business, right? Like play long-term games with long-term people. And I think that applies to your collectors that applies. If you choose to get representation that applies to artist collaborations, launch platforms, whatever. I think it, it feels like a, a universal rule. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a fantastic one. And I'll just add one more is do what Lars does and drip out really like awesome work in progresses. You could, you could put those work in progresses out for months. And I mean, okay, you maybe don't want to stretch it out too long and I'm sure you want to get to the finish of the project, but that's a fantastic way to build hype. I think that, uh, you know, artists are, it's a, it's an interesting game coming on web three because you have the ability to be your own self promoter in a way that I think was much more difficult than before. You don't have to do it, but but you can. And that certainly could be part of the game. 
but that is awesome advice. Thank you for sharing that in your experience there. I think as uh, time goes on, that will be extremely valuable for folks to hear about. And like we said, it helps you focus on your art. So let's, let's get into some of your art, man. And we've been keeping the people waiting. Uh, would you like to screen share? I would love to. Let's see. Let me close some extra tabs here. As that is going up, I wanted to let people know uh, Lars has a website, LarsWander.com. And if you go to the art section there, you can see a lot of his fantastic work. And, you know, Lars, I, I would love to hear about how your work progressed. I mean, the the oldest one you have on here is called Ribbon, that ribbons, excuse me, that does look like some of your plotter work. Now, is this some of the stuff you were doing back during the early days of the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, this is, I mean, uh, it's tough when you're putting together like a portfolio or a website to like decide what to include because I feel like it's, it's fun to share things that aren't even necessarily for sale too because uh, you want to just, um, I don't know, put stuff that you're excited about up here. So um, this was... Like this is kind of a rough date of, I guess, when some of these pieces were made, but um, these ribbons, some of them were sold as a part of the Perry Mary Lars show, but none of the ones pictured here. These are, these are still in my, in my giant stack of old plots that's sitting up there somewhere. Um, but um, these kind of came from, I guess, like maybe a, a, you, you could call it like a dialogue or a conversation with a medium where in, in pen plotting, like the, like the atom or the, the smallest unit is like a single line that you draw with, with the machine. And that could be as small as a single point and it can be as long as something that, that fills the whole page. But um, as you're sort of playing with the pen plotter and you're figuring out what you want to draw, you quickly realize that, well, one, putting too many lines in a single place will simply tear the page. And that's, that's no good. It's kind of a funny limitation to run up against, <clears throat> but um, it's also often like aesthetically not very appealing to have a lot of crossing lines in, in many places. And that's something that um, maybe it's an artifact of our visual systems and or maybe it's just some, there's some inherent truth to not having too many intersecting lines because they don't look very good. Um, but what I, what I did with the ribbons was basically give every line that's drawn um, a width and a height. So they're sort of in, in a parametric sense and, and it's like 3D uh, world where they can now occlude one another. And what that lets you do, let's see if I can have a high resolution one here, is it lets you start to explore with what happens when you layer and intersect and draw all of these lines on top of each other. And this is a piece that I'm actually really quite fond of um, because it looks, especially when you zoom in, like very chaotic and very messy. And you can sort of see where all these Ribbons are, in some cases, intersecting with each other. In other cases, they're kind of going over and under one another. Um, however, this, this piece is actually um, three-way rotationally symmetric. And if you look at the exact center, um, which is right here, you can see that pretty much everywhere, there's these triangles that form at varying scales. And the piece is really just kind of like you'd normally take a tapestry where you have two sheets and you sort of interweave them like this. In this case, you just have three and you get like a 
um, abstract computer tapestry weaving, which I guess is something that, more generally speaking, I find so so fun and exciting about the computer art world, which is that you can take systems that we're sort of familiar with in everyday life and then re-represent them in code and then tweak the parameters to get them into a state where they're physically impossible, but somehow still possible in the state of the computer system. And, uh, it's kind of like taking these things and turning them on their head in a very grounded and logical way, but uh, in a way that's completely absurd and impossible at the same time. I find that juxtaposition very beautiful. And how do you how do you marry that with wanting to actually plot the piece, right? Because you're creating this, let's call it this uh, structure that is impossible in the real world, but then how do you get it to represent in a a meaning or a logical way on in real life? Yeah, great question. I feel like that's kind of the fun with the pen plotter is you get to breathe life into these things by taking something that maybe was previously impossible, but then representing it um, in a two-dimensional space where suddenly you, you can sort of peer at it from one angle and you can kind of get, um, it's, it's kind of like taking like a four-dimensional shape and casting a light on it and then looking at the two-dimensional shadow that gets created. Like, like yeah, it's not something that can exist in our world, but the shadow can. And you can see this alternative perspective on this object that, um, is impossible and maybe not even something that we can really even hold in our heads, but we can look at it from angles that maybe it starts to make sense. So you can start to appreciate some of the beauty in it. Yeah, no, this is, this is giving me echoes back to like nth dimensional calculus being like, <laughs> what is the fifth integral of something even mean? Uh, but I, I, I know what you're saying. And actually on that point, like how deep into the like math, were you getting as you were exploring these different concepts that you wanted to play around with? Yeah, good question. I, I think, well, um, well, there's a whole like semi-body of work that I haven't haven't talked about much that I, well, it's because I haven't really gotten into a state where I'm very happy with, but it's probably where I um, went the deepest on the math front where there's um, <clears throat> this really fantastic library in Python called JAX, and that's J-A-X. Uh, let me get up here. Uh, JAX, Python. And if you're familiar with um, NumPy, if you have any sort of maybe data science or machine learning background, um, NumPy is it's a library for um, representing vectorized data uh, and doing transformation on it with a Python interface that's maybe typically slow, but NumPy is incredibly fast. Uh, so you can uh, do all sorts of very fancy things with it. But it's what's amazing with JAX is you can write NumPy code using uh, the, the, uh, the JAX NumPy interface. And you can compute like a quote unquote forward pass where you uh, run some math, you do, do some computation. And if you want to, you can optionally compute all the partial derivatives for uh, for the output with respect to the input. So obviously, the, the immediate application here is machine learning, and that's what this was uh, developed for. But um, what I was trying to do with this was uh, something inspired by uh, Jonathan McCabe, who I uh, highly recommend. He's a brilliant artist, Jonathan McCabe. Uh, look him up, jonathanmccabe.com. He's a computer artist who's doing stuff unlike really anyone else in the space. And 
super brilliant guy. He's been doing this for, for many years. Um, just love giving him shout outs because I feel like he's not appreciated enough in the space. Um, but I um, talked to him about how he was producing a certain set of works and he said he had basically competing objective functions that um, he was evaluating manually and written some tools to sort of with like a human input sort of guide these systems of equations into, into a happy state and produce very stunning visual outputs. And what I was trying to do with Jax was see if I can do it automatically using uh, automatic differentiation and then using that differentiation to guide those two objective functions into a local minima that uh, produced something interesting. But I spent maybe like three months working on this and nothing cool came out yet. I definitely want to go back to this and I think it'll make something really interesting one day. And I have certain ideas of how this can even be maybe tied into a long form project based on some uh, heavy computation that happens beforehand that then gets uploaded into uh, into an uh, Ethereum contract. But uh, so far that hasn't yielded anything. So, uh, uh, but, but yeah, sometimes you go deep on the math and it doesn't uh, yield anything, but if anything, I think it's maybe more going deep on the, the computer systems that, that that's been happening here. Yeah, no, that th this is super interesting, and I imagine that. Well, I'll, I'll save it for later because I, I have some theories around the experimentation that's happening, the creativity that you know. I just love this idea of pushing yourself creatively for one purpose, and then somebody coming up a month, a year, ten years, a decade later and repurposing that for some other use. Like to me, it's just so cool to see that. I mean, in the pharmaceutical industry, people are making drugs for one reason and they forget about them. And then 20 years later, they repurpose that drug and it's like a cure for something that was incurable. And I think that kind of thing really, a generative art lends itself to that because you're, you're creating all this cool stuff and who knows how that might be used for art or something else in the future. And also the, um, I, I forget the word is, but the, the Lego nature of code, right? Where you can just kind of build on itself, especially open source code is super cool. But people are going to kill me if I don't get back to the art. So uh, <laughs> going back to ribbons, you started playing around with the plotters. You create this beautiful shapes. I love that one that you showed. That actually was my favorite of the ones that um, were portrayed here on your website. What artistic thread did this uncover for you and kind of where did you pull on next? Like what, what did ribbons lead into, you know, the next, uh, uh, grouping of projects you have here of works you have is called polygon packing, but I'd love to hear like, what did that inspire in you and how did that manifest into the next one? And then perhaps you could keep going as to like how your various projects unfolded and where they redirected you to. Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Um, I, I feel like a lot of my exploration is like very breath first, like it's kind of going into many directions at once. And uh, I, uh, the ribbons um, yielded a lot of interesting outputs and some of them were shown uh, in this show here. I think, uh, let's see, uh, I have a whole, whole set of them here. So actually these outputs were created by that same rhythm, uh, ribbons algorithm and they were plotted in graphite and produced these like very beautiful floral shapes that I uh, had a lot of fun, one, producing outputs for, and then two, two plotting just because they're so delicate. Um, and it uh, also produced all of these, these sets, these two sheets. So the, kind of the same way I was explaining that, that three rotationally symmetric piece, these, these aren't symmetric in the same way, but they are the same shape, but just rotated once. And then you find these like very interesting intersection patterns that then become 
uh, made alive and visualized through um, through code. And I, I really enjoy these. Um, but I guess chronologically, what happened next, or what I was sort of exploring at the same time, uh, was this polygon packing technique that um, and this is maybe an overloaded term. Like I think, depending on who you ask, this means different things. But um, like the process is explained here, and it's it's taking a shape and basically reflecting it over an arbitrary edge, depending, you can use different policies for selecting what the next edge is, and then looking at and seeing what the patterns are that you get. And the, uh, it's one of those fun things where like at a small scale like this, like it doesn't seem very interesting and you don't really, like maybe it's not super inspiring, like, like, okay, sure. Like you take a triangle and you start flipping it over its edge. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of obvious. You get like this kind of a shape. But what was really interesting was as you scaled it up and as you made it bigger and bigger, you started getting like some, uh, I don't have an easy way to look at that. These like very rich grain structures that almost kind of mirror how you see these grain boundaries, for example, in, in metals. Um, if you uh, uh, look at them at the atomic level, you have these very large contiguous sheets that form regular crystal lattices. And then in certain places they abruptly change into a slightly differently oriented uh, pattern. And I think that's one of those things that was very fun where with the computer, you can take something small and simple and then scale it up and see how you go from small and simple and predictable to large and chaotic and sort of wonderfully unpredictable. Um, and I really love these four-sided shapes here because they produce these, they almost look like those, those pavers that you sometimes see in some European countries where you have these kind of radial patterns that emanate when you have these four-sided uh, uh, tiles. I think they're called sets, actually. We have a link here. They, yeah, they look kind of like these. But, and and this, this particular project uh, was actually what, what inspired Geode, where, uh, like, it's, I guess maybe it's, maybe it's a secret, maybe it's no secret, but this is my favorite uh, project that I've released on, on FX Hash, and it's um, really fun to also see these in high res, where this is basically taking that same polygon packing technique, but it adds one extra element that I thought was really important to the series, which is the, the color of the shape comes from the edge on the preceding shape that it was reflected over. So if you have a repeating pattern where you repeatedly sort of flip over the same pair of edges or the same trifecta of edges, you get a part of the piece that is colored or patterned identically. So you have these kind of quasi-grain structure like shapes and patterns emerging, and you get these really rich textures, which um, and I think if you, if, you go to, if you look at them live here, let's see if we run it. By the way, this, this is a crowd favorite too. So I think uh, the crowd will love to hear that this is also the your favorite on, on FX hash over here. While this is loading, I'm curious, uh, you know, in that natural structure, as you described, do you get sort of segments of the patterning repeating, but then adjacent to it, you have something different and you're seeing them render here. How do you dictate whether the pattern continues or if it reverts to a different patterning adjacently? Essentially, like how do the stripes of patterns create, uh, is it just random? that the next one has a higher chance of being that same pattern if it's next to it, but there is a chance that it changes or something like that? No, great question. No, it's, uh, it's actually, um, it's uh, completely emergent from, uh, from, I guess, 
the structure of the code or the structure of what it's simulating. Uh, what it's what it's trying to do is it's always trying to pick whichever edge is available for fitting a shape. So if there's no shape that you can fit, like for example, like here it looks like there's no room for a shape, so nothing was packed there. But uh, as long as there's room on an edge closest available to uh, whatever point it's trying to grow towards, so here it was clearly growing from the, the top left corner to the bottom right corner, um, it just picks that edge and then continues the pattern. And then the, the actual structures that emerge and the shapes that you get are completely an artifact of um, how the code's evaluating. So it's, it's, I think this is one of those things where, like, I, I personally love this kind of stuff where you have a little bit of creative control at the start, like you're telling it to sort of behave with these sort of high level uh, rules that maybe dictate the behavior at a very small scale. But then the overall structures that emerge are really just a byproduct of the code and the, the evaluation of the system. Yeah, and as you're making these, or even going back to ribbons, I mean, it strikes me that like ribbons uh, and now polygon packing, which as you're describing led into geode, like what, do you have a clear source of inspiration for these? You know, is it like, I mean, you, you mentioned the the cobblestone patterning that you see in some places in Europe, or, you know, are, are you starting with something that you've experienced in real life and then trying to back into it? Or is it really just kind of a pure exploration of, of the code that and you, some things catch your eye or your mind and you keep going with it? Yeah, no, no, great question. I feel like there's, it's tough because there's like never like one uh, consistent source where, um, I guess like the ideas or their inspiration comes from, it's always um, maybe something random. I, I, I don't think that the, the, the tiles were necessarily the, the inspiration going into it, but maybe more something that I realized after the fact. In this case, it was, I think it's, it comes from like, in, sometimes it's doodling in a sketchboard, a uh, sketchbook, and sort of thinking from the perspective of like, well, what, what's possible to program, even if it's sometimes kind of challenging. And this was actually <laughs> probably one of the um, most like mind melting things to code because of just how many unbelievably tedious degenerate cases there are when you're dealing with intersections between shapes that have to be very precise, especially when it's the same shape reflected over itself. There's all sorts of cases where if you sort of naively do the intersection, you can miss cases where all the vertices are touching and there's no lines that are intersecting, for example, or uh, a shape is laying edge to edge. It's um, like all the uh, edges are on top of each other and they're not actually intersecting. There's all sorts of very strange cases where you uh, have an intersection and if you drew it, it would be obvious it's an inter intersection. And unless you, uh, and if you're doing like a naive sort of edge detection, you'll, you'll miss it. Um, and if you do it, more robustly, it'll be too slow and too expensive. So um, this one was uh, uh, <laughs> tedious. Like, is what I'm saying is it's possible to program. Sometimes it's painful, and that process of programming it can can sometimes be a source of joy. Sometimes it's a source of like head banging on the keyboard for a while because you're like it works great, and then like the two thousandth piece like doesn't work, and you see like two pieces overlapping, and you're like, why? <laughs> Which anyone who's programmed can, can relate to. And uh, Sure. De debugging these generative systems is a, its own beast. Yeah, yeah. Like some bugs are good and interesting because they produce unexpected outputs, and other ones are like clearly bad. I mean, I guess it's all subjective in the end, but I think if in this series two of these pieces had overlapped in a way that 
was immediately visually obvious, then I would say that's kind of the failure. So it's, um, yeah, it's somewhat subjective, somewhat not. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, you're, you're continuing your exploration of polygon packing with geode, which uh, again, fantastic came out wonderfully. And yeah, I, and it, it sort of looks like the, the paint mixing was a separate study, uh, not so much plotter related, not as uh, geometric. Um, how did you get into that? Or was that just always going on on the side and you're exploring these things simultaneously? Yeah, no, the, well, the paint mixing also, I guess, came from like the same general idea of like, there's gotta be a way to program this uh, like some way or another. Uh, and the early approach that I took was entirely CPU bound and very slow. And I think this piece right here, which was a commission for Tony, took maybe like 10 minutes or so to render on my very beefy CPU, which is kind of embarrassing if you think about how much faster you can make it. It's like, it's very inefficient. Um, and there's all sorts of techniques that I think I like stumbled across later on that, that make it much faster. But um, uh, yeah, no, these, these basically came from actually initially like a fascination with um, uh, this guy, uh, Mark Lovejoy. And he, and obviously like the pieces that I wound up producing here, they don't look like these, like these are like clearly done in a physical medium. They, um, they're like, I think fundamentally, uh, very different, but I, I remember seeing these, I don't even, don't, don't even know where, but I saw these and I was immediately fascinated by just how rich and beautiful one, the colors were, and then two, the shapes were. And I think that um, like seeing that sort of inspired me to, to wonder like, well, if you do it from like a computer oriented way where like the goal, at least for me is never to like perfectly replicate some, some physical phenomena, because I think, well, well, one, we can always just use the physical phenomena if we wanted to, like, I think it my, my goal was to perfectly reproduce Mark Lovejoy's work, I'd probably try to start with paint, like I wouldn't do it on a computer. But, um, uh, and that usually develops into uh, a lot of research and a lot of playing with, with the code and trying to find a way to represent these things digitally. And then uh, generally, as a result, you, um, you never really quite get there, but you get somewhere interesting. And that gives you a place to play around and to explore and find something that, that inspires you. Yeah, no, these are absolutely beautiful. What you're showing on screen here, the the Mark Lovejoy works. And so, how how did you, you know, given that you weren't trying to perfectly replicate these, how did you think about your paint mixing algorithm and how I guess closely you wanted to replicate that while still putting a nod to the medium with code? Yeah, yeah, no, I think well the. Um... The initial thing that I was kind of fascinated with was, well, how do we even just get close to producing like the uh, something that looks like paint, something that sort of has the the same fluidity and the same, uh, uh, I guess, contours and the same general shapes that look like something like, like it doesn't. It's clearly not paint. It's clearly not like uh, paint that's mixing. But I think if you if you showed this to someone and you asked them what it was, you probably get some guesses of like, well, it looks a little bit like, like paint that's being stirred and that that's uh, definitely where these things start. But where it then led me to was, um, and I think it's might be visible 
in one of these pieces if we if we zoom in. Um, early on, I was kind of playing with different ways of zooming. Let's see if we yeah here. I was playing with like um, so these were actually rendered as SVGs and they were like multiple layers and they had different opacities and something that I was really frustrated with was when these different layers of different opacities were mixing. When they mix in RGB space, which is just the way these things get mixed when you set opacities, they produce um, like consistent, but honestly, objectively, sometimes kind of um, ugly results. Like if you, for example, uh, have uh, uh, blue and yellow and you mix them in RGB space, like you kind of see is happening here. Um, your eyes might be playing a trick on you, and you might see maybe something slightly bluish or something slightly greenish. But if you, if you look very closely, it's actually closer to gray. And like if you have real paint, you, uh, that's, that's not what you would expect. And I mean, that's not to say that the way paints mix is the best way that color should mix. But at the very least, I was kind of interested in this idea of like, well, how do we find more aesthetically pleasing ways of, of mixing these colors? And um, what that led into um, was uh, like a long, like several months spent studying how, how colors mix and how paints mix. And uh, there's, there's one uh, theory developed surprisingly in the 1930s by this pair of physicists, uh, Kubelka and Monk, and it's named Kubelka-Monk theory, uh, that describes how um, pigments uh, mix and how they um, reflect and scatter incoming light um, based on um, their their spectral distributions. So if we take a look, and and that I assume was a study in well, of course, been the nineteen thirties in analog, like real life paint. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And the remarkable thing, let's see, that um, that happens here is that in order to like fully verify this theory and to apply it physically, you have to derive these spectral coefficients for uh, the paints that you're dealing with, which is actually computationally very expensive. And I think the first group that did it uh, was this lab uh, under Roy Burns, and I can show you the, the master's thesis where this was done. Wow, so, so you, you really went deep, huh? How, how did you even find that? Uh, this was like months and months of Googling, basically. Well, let's see if we can even find it again here. Uh, actual masters. What do I look for? That's the one. And if, you, if you're listening to this and you're curious how all of this works, this masters in particular is a really great introduction to the subject. And it, describes the background and describes uh, the process for collecting these coefficients. However, the, and this is uh, something I've probably talked about too many times now, but the, the, the actual coefficients themselves, they're, they're all plotted down here. So you can get a sense for like the um, reflectance and the uh, scattering coefficients. Uh, but to get them with enough detail to actually perform the paint mixing, um, you, uh, like they're not published here yet. I had to reach out to the uh, professor and then also get clearance from the paint manufacturer that these coefficients are based on, which is gold and acrylics. And 
uh, they were very generous to let me use these for, for work that I was going to sell under the one condition that I don't share the coefficients further. The reason being that they, um, I think in theory, my understanding is you can use the coefficients to then reproduce on a chemical level the actual paint. So they're basically the intellectual property of the paint manufacturer. So, Ah, super interesting. Okay. And that allowed you to represent the way that the colors would mix in a realistic fashion based on these coefficients. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Which is, I think in, in some sense also maybe kind of interesting here where, so like there's one piece here that I think shows this, this very well, or has like a nice example of where, where this mixing is happening and it's piece number 18 and it's owned by AOI where if you, oops, let's open this. On a separate tab. If we really zoom in and we look right here, um, what the code's doing is it's, it has like multiple buffers that it's writing the paint concentration to. Um, and in this case, you can see it's uh, mixing this blue in various gradations with this particular yellow. You can actually see some really beautiful and different shades of, of green in here. And um, it's interesting because obviously like the, the paints aren't mixing like they, they do in real life. Like there's, they're flat. They have like hard to find boundaries. They don't have any gradations within them, but that's definitely very intentional as it's kind of an interesting play on the medium in a, in a purely digital sense where at the same time, you still see like echoes of this, for example, in these shades of green, these gradations where clearly the mixing's happening, but it's not, not visible like we see in, in the physical world. And I think that's, that's one thing that I guess excites me and really, um, I don't know, gets me um, hyped up about these particular pieces here. This is so cool. I mean, so for folks who may not know, we're, we're looking at the How You See Me series that Lars released on Object as one of ones. Uh, this this is when I first uh, really like heard your name and, and started noticing. I'm I'm embarrassed to say I didn't I didn't hear it earlier, but uh, I, I'm working on my my methodologies for finding uh, new artists sooner. But I remember seeing these and I was like, wow, these are unbelievably good. And uh, you know the word like clean or crisp and other non-artistic, non-specific words came into my mind when I was looking at this. And as you're explaining this, it, it makes sense. I mean. You know, if you're getting to that level of detail, I think that it's it's hard to appreciate why something catches your eye. But you're really getting into the weeds here. I mean, you're the the, the paper you referenced is 192 pages, right? I mean, this this is like some serious level of research. So, first of all, thank you for sharing this. is unbelievable. I hadn't noticed this on the Zoom, the close up, and I'm curious, like in the print, does it come out like this? Because I mean, for the physical print, you actually are mixing paint, right? Or at least inkjet to, or I'm going to stop embarrassing myself without, because I don't know exactly how it works, but does it come out like this or does it come out what you would, you know, does the digital representation end up translating into the analog, given that you did do some things that in theory were not uh, physically possible as you were creating this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny, right? Like the, the whole, like there's this constant re-representation that happens in digital media where even seeing the same piece in different screens, you'll see the colors represented slightly differently. And uh, when you print, uh, the, the colors are then uh, translated by the printer into yet another format and then printed uh, according to whatever methodology the printer uses where 
even those colors won't exactly match what you see on the screen. And that's, uh, I guess, in some ways, like an unfortunate side effect of the uh, um, the medium where you, you can only really ever get so close and you have to sort of accept that if you print these, you're only going to get so close to the colors in the end. But that's also not the goal here is to like perfectly represent the colors, but instead it's uh, much more about balancing the relationships between the colors and how they look next to each other. And that's something that sort of regardless of how you show it, the, the screen or the printer is going to do a good job of. Um, I think what the um, printer is doing in the end is uh, much closer to how colors mix in uh, in reality, where it's uh, when you, or not in reality, but how they mix with paint. Um, if you are dealing with your screen, it's an additive process where you mix colors by sort of adding one wavelength on top of the other, and both wavelengths are then present when you when you wind up showing the image. Whereas when you do it in a physical media, it's it's subtractive, and you um, wind up using pigments to only reflect um, the wavelengths that are, um, I guess, reflected by that particular pigment, which um, is in a certain sense, like the inverse process from what the screen does. Uh, and fortunately, we have our printers to do all that complicated calculation and they're heavily pre-calibrated and the drivers that these like fancy printers use are like a lot of, way more research goes into those than the, the research that even goes into these pieces. So I'm very fortunate for the, the folks at HP and Epson and all them to, to make this easy for us to use. But it's, um, um, it's a good question. Yeah, like it, it is an interesting thing that happens where, where these, these same works get re-represented between like your phone screen and your computer screen and the print and all the many ways that you can, you can wind up showing this work. Yeah, no, this is, this is unbelievable and, and super cool. Like this, this uh, feels like a privilege to even have the chance to talk to you about this. And, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy hearing about these techniques and how in depth you went and how thoughtful you've been about this. And, you know, I, you have a few other projects, uh, you have, Lions Walking, which was applaudables. We didn't cover Gossamer or Unfolded. I'd love to just hear if there's anything you wanted to highlight from those projects before we move on to what you're looking to next, because I, I really want to get to that too. But yeah, anything about some of those uh, other ones that are favorites or that you want to highlight for folks listening? Yeah, well, I guess maybe one thing I'd like to point out, because I haven't so I've always been meaning to do a more in-depth write-up for, for Geode and Unfolded, but uh, Unfolded in particular, I feel like it's it's an interesting one to me because it's um, it's about like pattern exploration guided by a computer where the the patterns that you see are um, generated by this this algorithm that I wrote for simulating how paper gets folded. And um, I mean maybe it's obvious from the name. But I think uh, all the, the shapes and the creases and the, the, the valleys and the crests come from computer code basically taking a square, folding it up a certain number of times according to a pattern based on the traits, uh, and then unfolding it. And then using that resulting pattern um, and sort of repetitions in that pattern and repetitions in which side of the paper that the, the fold ended up on to actually wind up assigning the colors, which um, it's uh, still something I want to do a more in-depth write-up on to sort of explain the process and share the algorithms that other people can use it to if they want to play with algorithmic paper folding. But uh, I think it's something that I, yeah, I've been, been dying to talk about, but just haven't had the time to. 
Oh man. You know, what's funny. We just interviewed James Merrill two days ago who did the uh, art box curated in Ori. And that is, I'm sure it's, there's way, way more nuance, but the core of that algorithm is also folding paper along a plane and then playing around with that. So you all should talk sometime. I'm sure you would have a lot of fun uh, chatting about that, but I love these unfolders are beautiful. I actually, uh, of your FX hash collections, this one was my favorite. I don't know why I was just really drawn to it. And I love how you integrated the color into this. And I'm curious, since we're on this page, you know, you mentioned that it's, uh, different ways that this square could be folded and then it's kind of folded back open and you have the various creases. How did you think about the color patterning and how that patterning might be imprinted on those folds? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I feel like when I, um, at least at the time, and I still feel this way now when I try to use color and maybe this comes from, from my day job where we have to use color as a means for conveying information. Um, I feel like I want the color and the intensity of some section of the image to correspond to some meaning, which is something that's like creatively you're afforded to do with a computer because you can write rules about how a certain object gets colored. And maybe by definition, that's, that's how it works with computer art. But, um, here the, uh, the, the colors and the intensities, um, are assigned um, by basically looking at the end after you've unfolded the sheet of paper, you have all these different uh, chunks and there are these like different convex shapes that, for example, if we take a look at this one right here, like you can see all these kind of boundaries defining these shapes that are all equally colored and have like uh, sort of uh, equally shaped uh, textures within them. Um, when those pieces are first created and folded, they always end up either on the top of a fold or on the bottom of a fold. And that process is repeated where you, you keep on doing it. And, and of course, when you do your first fold, which you can always identify here by, it's usually the one that is completely uninterrupted and runs from one edge of the page to the other. Um, obviously, this shape isn't visible then in the folding pattern. But by the time it's done, that particular subsection of the paper that you're folding has always either been on the top or the bottom of every fold. And you can take that top bottom sequence as a binary string and then create a rule that says every binary string that matches this pattern gets a certain color. Um, so in the end, the colors come from uh, that particular sequence of folding and unfolding that happens, which then uh, surfaces itself by having, in many cases, like very structured and regular repeating patterns of color that are then broken up by the particular folding and unfolding sequence that happens. So there's the, the, the colors aren't, aren't random, but they're also not immediately obvious either where they come from. And uh, yeah, that's how, how the colors get assigned here. Oh, this is so cool. And, you know, we, we started off collector's corner by doing deep dives into specific projects. I feel like we could, go deep into all of the various nuances of this project and of geode and of a, a few of your other ones, but yeah. So th this is, this is super cool and maybe we'll have you back on some time and we can go like deeper into any of these, but I do want to ask you about what you're exploring next. And, and maybe you could show some of the work in progress as you've, you've had up on Twitter uh, because they're so good. And 
of course, like I'm speaking from a very visual standpoint. I don't know anything about the code. I'm just curious, like what, what are you exploring these days? And these outputs you've been uh, teasing on Twitter, like what, what, you know, looks like almost like a mix. Like you have some geometry in there, of course, they look 3D, but you have these brilliant colors mixed in, which seem to be uh, another evolution of how you see me. But I'll stop trying to guess and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, I'd love to share. Um, so the, um, I like that you said how you see me for the colors because the, the final step for determining those colors um, is basically taking that spectral representation and turning it into an RGB color. And I, um, uh, I'm taking that, that same approach uh, and I'm using it to assign colors within um, what I'm calling a spectral ray tracer, where so typically, so ray tracing is like a very common technique in computer graphics. And um, actually, let me just pull up one of the pictures as, as a background here. So I see this is a, a live a render here. Um, where in uh, computer graphics, what you're doing is you're uh, basically taking from the perspective of a camera, you're shooting It's kind of like the reverse process of what you do. If you uh, have, a, have a scene in physical reality, you you shoot rays out from the camera and you look and you have them uh, leave the camera and then bounce around the scene until they find a light source. And all, uh, all along the way record how much light was absorbed by every material they hit and how much light's being reflected there or emitted there to then decide what color that particular pixel will be. And for the sake of efficiency and the sake of being able to render things either in real time or in, in reasonable amounts of time, it's way uh, way cheaper to do these things only looking at RGB colors. Um, but uh, because we're, we're making art, we're not trying to just make the most efficient image possible. Um, what I'm doing here is for every single wavelength, I'm associating a phase and, sorry, for every single uh, ray, I'm associating a wavelength and a phase, which uh, once you shoot enough rays out from a single pixel, you can use those to basically build up what's called a spectral power distribution. And then you can translate that into uh, an RGB color. And um, in these particular images here, maybe we can look at a few of them as they render. And they they run, I guess it's maybe not captured great on the, on the zoom here, but they do run in real time. And they uh, have, uh, and the code's constantly evolving. So it's hard to say exactly where it is now or where it'll be uh, whenever it gets released on, on whatever platform it winds up. But um, they're uh, basically scenes that are set with um, just one or one or two spheres that are either reflecting or uh, refracting light. And the, the rules of the reflection and the refraction are heavily dependent on the wavelength, which then create these very rich um, rainbow structures that, uh, that then become visible here, where sometimes you get some very monochrome palettes like this. And you can sort of see, I'm not sure if it's super visible, but you go from a very noisy image at the start where as the renderer keeps running, it keeps collecting more samples and winds up producing uh, or uh, calculating for every pixel um, what the final color should be based on the average of very many samples that it treats out. So you go from like very grainy, noisy, kind of like a film camera to something very smooth as the, the renderer keeps running. And we can 
look through some uh, sample images here. Let's see. These are, these are beautiful. And for anyone who's listening on audio, just stop and go on YouTube because you absolutely have to see these. And did I hear you right, Lars, that these are constantly evolving in a sense that they're, they're constantly cycling and like rendering, or is it just that initial rendering process and then it gets to a static image? Oh, uh, well, that's um, uh, what I meant to say was the, the code I'm constantly evolving. So I think what, whatever I'm showing here is not maybe necessarily a reflection of where it'll end up, but these do, in theory, these, these can run forever. So you could, have one constantly running and layering more and more light to build more and more uh, intricacy and structure. And that was something I explored for some time, but realized that the longer you let it run, sort of the noisier it gets. And I haven't found a good happy medium between like letting it run forever and actually producing interesting things along the way. I think right now it's producing nice things um, after like a couple seconds. And that's, that's usually where, where I leave it. But um, this image right here. Oops, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, I'm just so. So, what got you curious about this? Uh, and I, I love how you're explaining this in depth. And and my brain's still catching up with what you're saying. So I'm gonna have to go back and listen to this again in terms of the the details of how the colors are manifest and how they evolve based on like the pixels around them. But what was the the goal here that you wanted to explore? What what got you curious about this? Yeah, yeah. No, the where it started was um seeing light just passing through a glass, like a glass of water or a window pane, and then seeing the kinds of patterns that uh, were showing up on the, the surface behind it, which is uh, something I later learned is called uh, caustics, which is basically the the uh, those like light patterns that form when you when you run them through some refractive medium like that. And uh, I feel like they're kind of like a great example of something that you can explore with computer art, because um, on one hand you can do this very much in parallel, like it's very friendly to the GPU to um, sort of cast these things out in parallel and independently to to compute your final image. Um, but then also they're sort of a source of unexpected and very rich complexity that arises from, uh, from doing this where you have, like I was showing a very simple scene with maybe one or two spheres. Um, but if you sort of mess with the rules a little bit in a way that you can really only do with a computer and explore a system in a way that you only can with the help of simulation and computation, you, you get these very, uh, rich and, and varied systems that, uh, that I think are, to me, like what, what excites me about computer art. Um, but um, no, I think hopefully maybe this, this helps explain a little more what's going on here, where this is like the very first image produced by that spectral ray tracer, where it's for every wavelength building the associated color. And you can kind of see it dip off into a darker shade here, where I think this is happening because her eyes are just less sensitive to the very long red wavelengths and the blues even get a little darker here where they're kind of dipping into the, the ultraviolet. Um, and, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's beautiful. Like I was thinking that, you know, you're, you're probably getting into the infrared spectrum where we can't see it anymore. I don't, I don't know if the computer emits it at that point. Um, but yeah, no, I just, I, it's, this is extremely captivating and, the, the color study that you're doing here is so cool. Where, where do you want to take this? I know you have some of these works in progress you're showing. Do you think that this is going to be an exploration you'll do for a while? 
Um, or are you thinking this is kind of a, a shorter thing? Maybe you do a couple projects on this and then other stuff in the works. Yeah. So there's actually a few of these pieces that were produced in the process that when I showed them to Sophia and Tony, they um, just absolutely loved them. And I, I always feel like, like it's fun to work on these things for a long time because you can produce, um, that you can just keep exploring and exploring and finding more and more interesting things. Um, but we found six pieces here along the way that uh, all, all three of us really liked. And what we're actually doing right now, and I think we're, this is the 31st of January, it's closing right now. We're doing a, a private auction uh, for a few of the people that over time have been asking for uh, the opportunity to, to collect one of these pieces. Um, and it's it's a private auction, so no, uh, it's and it's a sealed bid auction, so nobody knows what anyone's bidding, and we're using the second highest bidder to set the price for um, for the winner. So it's uh, the tough thing with these private auctions is that it's like you don't know what to bid, um, and uh, it's maybe scary to overbid in these cases. So uh, doing second highest bidder um, makes things maybe a little more fair and a little less expensive where I'm kind of afraid, maybe this is going back to the earlier discussion about like pacing and career uh, to have prices rise too quickly. And I wouldn't want to create a situation where all of a sudden, because there's a lot of hype, a piece sells for a bunch and then there's an expectation for other pieces to sell that much. So hopefully by, by doing this privately and in, in a sealed bid second highest price auction, the, uh, the, the hype is maintained at a, a reasonable level and these, they sell for something uh, more reasonable. Yeah, no, that's smart. It, it's funny that you talk about the the blind auction because, as I mentioned earlier, I recently bought a house, and it, you know that's kind of like a blind auction, so to speak, right? Like the house up on for sale, and I remember thinking, like, why do they do it this way? Like, this is so annoying. Like, it should be just like NFTs where I could just see what other people are bidding. <laughs> but uh, there's a place and a time for every type of these uh, different mechanisms, for sure. And these are beautiful. I mean, congrats to the people who who own them. And I'm curious as you're thinking about, of course, you have to be smart about supply and, and all these other things that the Artex Code folks are talking about. Um, do you see yourself doing another long, long form? So I, I say long twice because I know you have your bright moments coming up and that's a hundred pieces, but do you see yourself doing the 300 plus collection uh again or how are you thinking about that yeah no well i think i absolutely want to do an art blocks trough whether it's curated or not it would be just wonderful to, to get to release on their platform um but uh it'll take some time for something to be ready for that and then i think even once it's ready there's going to be or what i hear is that there's a fairly long pipeline between uh, approval and then actually also being slotted in because there's a long queue of projects that they already have i think ready and in the pipeline for, for release. So, um, and in that case, I think that uh, odds are it would almost certainly be, like you say, a long, long form uh, release just because that's how, how it works for the platform. And I think um, some variation on this code, so something based on this concept of uh, um, painting with light where you're exploring the medium in a way that you you really only can with the computer because you, you're um, like, uh, either bending the laws of physics in a way that aren't possible, or you're um, doing things in the scene that aren't geometrically feasible in the real world, but then still producing hopefully visually beautiful results is uh, what I have in mind for, for an art box drop. But 
this is probably, I mean, honestly, at this point, it's probably more of a 2024 thing. Even if it was ready tomorrow, I think it would be a while before it actually uh, gets released there. Yeah. And how are you feeling about having your works sell for as much as they're selling for? We'll, we'll see, I'm sure, uh, before this is released, what those auctions ended up at that are, are probably going to be... Uh, I mean, I remember the how you see me's and I remember feeling very priced out, especially as people like, uh, Kylo and, and proper were, were bidding on them. And I was like, okay, yeah, like that's, that's not going to happen for me now <laughs> type of a thing. Uh, but it must be crazy to go from a hobby just a few years ago to, to this, like, how's it been? Yeah, no, it's very surreal and uh, very scary. Like <laughs> I, uh, like on one hand, I'm, uh, like I, I want to be able to do this, um, like like this, these competing feelings of like uh, it's best to be able to do this as like a uh, as the only thing on my mind, like where all my creative energy goes. So obviously, like has to make enough money so that I can pay rent and pay for food and all these things. And, uh, and uh, so in that case, it's a great blessing to be able to have these sell for so much um, because they they really like they it's more than just paying for food and rent. It's like actually really uh, like uh, like very privileged to to have these sell for so much but at the same time it's it's very scary because it feels like now there's an expectation that the the future works also sell for that much and that's i mean i, I understand from the collector's perspective like if i spend a large sum of money on on an artwork i mean of, of course it's like you it's unreasonable to expect every artwork to appreciate in value because that's just impossible like that's of course that's that's not the way things work but uh there is also like an understanding that you're not going to do something completely idiotic and destroy your own market because that's not serving your own interests and that's not serving their interests and it's i guess you kind of feel caught between those two where it looks like there's something to say no i i'm i'm glad you bring this up because and I'm glad we're talking about it while we're recording because this is, it's an interesting point, right? And I think of like, there are levels, you know, I don't think it is realistic for Tyler Hobbs to expect that everything he releases now to be worth at least a hundred ether the way that Fidenzas are, right? I mean, it's just, it's gone to a level where it's sort of like, you know, I it, I think he should just focus. And I, I, I've never talked to Tyler and if he listens, I would, you know, if I did, I'd tell him the same thing, like just focus on making really, really good work, right? Like what, what got you here in the first place and not worry as much about like, it has to be worth more than Fidenza or all the other Fidenza collectors are going to be upset. Like me as a collector, I'm not upset. Like I'm a huge anti-cyclone collector. I love William Mappon's work. I got a 1935, which is his bright moments drop. I'm not upset that the floor is not as high. I love his work. I think it's great. It's different. Fine. The crowd didn't like it as much, but it is what it is. I think as long as you're making a concerted effort to put out really consistently good work and it doesn't feel cash grabby, then that's all that reasonable collectors will care about. And I emphasize reasonable because you're you're always going to have some unreasonable people, right? Who want like everything, right? I mean, who want it to, to go to a million dollars tomorrow and why isn't it happening yet? And I think you kind of have to just tune those people out because, you know, whatever, right? Like you just, just don't have enough time for that. And 
I, I would just encourage you, I think to, of course you have like the Arctic's code team, like helping you out, but I would also encourage you to follow your artistic intent and trust that you doing that and, and really following that is going to lead to good results, even if it doesn't happen right away, or even it's not exactly what all the collectors want, because I mean, Hey, it's what got you here in the first place. I really appreciate that. Yeah. My, my hope hundred percent is that I can kind of just do wacky creative stuff that's fun uh and um i guess if, if it sells for a lot of money that's, that's great for me but i guess um of course in the back of my mind is always the sense that like yeah it comes with the responsibility too of uh what's what's cool sorry to cut you off is you can in this world you can always create some fake name and drop it on like fx hash and nobody ever knows it's you and you never have to tell anybody and you can just kind of see and then that way get stuff out there that makes people happy without, uh, you know, having any sort of reverberations on what you've done so far. hundred percent. Yeah, no, I think that's actually very tempting and, <laughs> and who knows, maybe I've done it. Maybe I will do it. I won't be able to comment on that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny. The, the speculators premium we have, right? Like I've thought about what if an artist really just released something that was brilliant and never told anybody who it was. And they just like, they just never told anybody. And it's like, we're seeing this right now with these friendship bracelets on art blocks that got re released and like Snowfro and everyone in art blocks has been extremely clear. This is nothing but a gift. It's never going to be anything but a gift, but that's it. And just the crowd's mind is turning it into something else. And in some ways it's, it's beautiful like that because it, it becomes truly a, a community project in that way, because we assign meaning to it. And I think sometimes just letting things exist like that might be a better path. Um, especially, I mean, that's not the goal, right? Your, your goal is probably, I'm sure to express yourself artistically and see how people feel about it and relate to it. But, you know, just, uh, just a thought out there, but to your point, um, some of your works are, are now selling for a really, uh, well-deserved amount of money, but uh, certainly a lot of money. Are you, have you started collecting? Like, I'm, I'm curious to hear about Lars, the collector, you know, or now that perhaps you have some money that you feel like you can spend in that way. Um, what do you like to collect? And if not, uh, have you thought about it and what kind of stuff tends to catch your eye, even if you haven't bought it? hundred percent. No, I collect a ton on FX hash and object. Those are like my, my favorite playgrounds to, to go and explore and collect. And I mean, I can pull up my... We can we can see in the wallet, and I um uh, uh I think yeah it's a huge range basically I can like it's I have a, a bunch of like many pages of art to go through and um it, it's a mix like some of it's stuff like it's an artist that I want to support like an artist who I um I respect who they are and I respect what they do and I just want to buy their works and of course there's many artists too that I respect and love and adore but um buying their works would just be too expensive because it's like i would love to own a ringers for example but <laughs> like to me that's like the, like the pinnacle of like long form generative i think is the ringers project but that's just sort of out of my price range still so but um no it, it's a huge range it's like like i mean i could it'll be tough to give shout outs because i think like for every project you shout out there's a million others that you miss but i guess while we're looking at this page like for example uh soft ice like i think uh, by Anatoly Zenkov. It's a great example of like 
something creative like one is interactive too which i like <laughs> and it's like it's wacky it's fun it's playful it's got great use of color it's um like i think this is a fantastic project it's, it's it has a pretty small edition size it's on fx hash i um i'll also say that i've actually i've only sold one piece ever that i've collected which was something that was airdropped and it has like a million editions and then it was blowing up my my object notifications so i apologize I, I had to sell that i didn't want that in my wallet it was also kind of profane so it was like one of those like um wasn't a huge fan of it but um so i'll, I'll be pumping up some projects but i have no intention of, of uh, i guess profiting off of that it's obviously not financial advice it, it, it's it's of course yeah the we we have a very long uh, no financial advice disclaimer at the end of all our episodes so uh <laughs> can always reiterate it and it, it's okay to sell stuff too i mean i think Let's put it this way. I think you as an artist are probably okay. If somebody like has a piece, they take care of it and they sell it and then somebody else can enjoy it and take care of it, et cetera. And in that way it, it spreads and they can use that capital to go support another artist or, or whatever, you know? Um, so true. No, in fact, actually, I love seeing like there's some folks who minted the first Gossamers like over a year ago and are now selling them for like hundred X profit. And that makes me actually very happy because they, one, they uh, they really liked the work. They held on to it for a while, and they, uh, I guess, are rewarded for that. And I, I can't fault them. And even if they sell for a loss, like I can't can't hold them for. Uh, uh, I don't know. Like, you you buy and sell what you want. I guess I just meant I don't want to be coming on here like hyping up a couple of projects and then seeming like I'm gonna sell the few that I that I uh, that I got really excited about. But not but at all. And I, I, I actually, sorry, I want to call one out that I really love you have down there plottable era one primitives. I love that oh, collection. Like huge web. fan. Big fan of this guy. He's really sweet. He does Twitch streams. Did I, did I open the right one? And actually really this project in particular, I think is, is like a wonderful, uh, like he has, it's actually really interesting. Like he um, has like a, an identifiable style that he's been building and, uh, I think in this case, like really put it to to use to great effect to produce these uh, these landscapes here. And I, I'm yeah, big fan of Gerweb, really sweet guy, a really uh, nice contributor to the community. And I was very happy to to collect this one. I think I I missed this one on primary, but picked this one up on secondary. And I'm, yeah, as did I. I mean, I I've recently started getting more into plottables, and his plottable work feels unique uh, in the sense that it, it it I don't see a lot of plottables like this. And with, especially with the color and the way he does the reflections is, is beautiful. I really enjoy this project a lot. Likewise, 100%. Yeah. And, and while I got you, I got to ask, I, I know I interrupted you, but I'd love to hear some of the other ones that catch your eye or some of the artists. Uh, yeah. I mean, really all of these do. I, uh, it's hard to, to call anyone out, but maybe we can just page through some others. Let's see. I, uh, um, I'm a big fan of what Alejandro is doing too with uh, Infantines. He, uh, he says, actually, it's really sweet that the, the interview that I did with Verse was what inspired him to look into uh, color mixing. And actually, what he's using here was uh, one of the, uh, there's a, a paper published by these uh, folks, Secret Weapons. They publish this paper, Mixbox. And they have code available for commercial use if you pay for a license. So if you reach out to them, they can uh, send you a copy of the code and you can pay, uh, I think, some either a flat rate or some fixed percentage of your uh, your expected income um, and 
he's he's using that here to actually do the color mixing. So it's in a certain sense maybe like a distant cousin of how you see these, which makes me very happy. So I was very happy. Well, one he sent this as a gift, which is very sweet of him. But then I was also really happy to collect um, uh, Enfantines one and two, which I the, the first one's probably further back in my wallet. But um, yeah, big fan of these here. Let's see what. Oh yeah, they're they're right here. Um, Eric Swan, brilliant, really great. Punk Weld, so good. I love this. This is like a a great example of, at least to me, like like very abstract geometry that you can produce with computer code. And then he does these wonderful things too, and layering and colors. And um, yeah, re really big fan of this project. And you know, this is this is one where I feel like it would be just unbelievable uh, in real life. You know, like the print of this would be. So not that this is not, but like, it feels like it would really lend itself to being printed. Totally agree. I think these would make some, I, I should probably print some. I'll, maybe I'll reach out to him to see if he, he approves of me printing one of, one of these, but, uh, but yeah, hundred percent agree. These, these are stunning and the detail on these is fantastic. I think like it's one of those where it really lends itself to looking closely and then enjoying the detail up close and then stepping away and, and seeing the composition as a whole, I think. Uh, Eric did a really fantastic job with these here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I won't make you uh, go through your whole wallet. We we can link to it so people can see what you like and and what you've collected with, without you having to uh, potentially bias folks on here. Oh, I, I see a nano panorama. Those are amazing too. Uh, but yeah, you know, I I wanted to ask you uh, just uh, just to respect your time, like. Are there any like parting thoughts you have or anything else you'd, you'd like to say to the audience? Ooh, that's tough. I, uh, I guess I'm just really thankful for this opportunity, both to be on the show, but even like more broadly speaking to get to do this uh, full time now going forward. So I, um, yeah, I'm incredibly excited. I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I think it's a wonderful space and uh, it's filled with a community of wonderful people. Well, well, yeah, and we can't wait to see what more you bring out, Lars. I mean, I think from this interview, it, it was clear to me even before this interview how much time you take into your craft. And now seeing the depths that you went into to explore this out of really just intrinsic exploration is is amazing. And you were doing that part-time while having a, a demanding job. I know you said you're having a lot of fun, but everybody knows that Google is not the you know, it's, it's not your, it's not a nine to five type of thing. So I'm like crazy excited to see what you're going to be coming up with now that you're full time and really curious to hear, you know, like to see Lars unleashed, I guess, and hear how it's going for you. So I want to really thank you for taking the time and we'll link to your Twitter and your at Lars Wander. We'll, we'll link to all of the stuff that you showcased here and, uh, yeah, just just really appreciate you taking the time and sharing with everybody. Like it's fantastic, and we're so happy to have you in the community. Thank you. I love to share. You've been a wonderful host, P. Thank you. All right. Well, until then, everybody, we'll we'll see you next time.